So today I want to spend our time um, really talking about the church. And then I want to talk about our church. And then I want to talk about your place in our church. Is that all right? I had nothing else planned. I hope it's all right. <laughs> when I read Luke chapter 24, I had in my mind, um, in the back of my mind, uh, phrases from T.S. Eliot's famous uh, four quartets where he says that the end precedes the beginning. He says, the beginning and the end have always been there, before the beginning and after the end. So the end is where we start from. Is that clear to everyone? I had a professor once who taught his heart out, and I used to say, I understood that perfectly well until you explained it to me. Sometimes I think I have that effect on some of you. You understand it until I get started and you're like, now, see, now I'm totally confused. The end and the beginning are there all the time before the beginning and after the end. So when you get to the end, you're just getting started. So the church, which comes at the end of the gospel, was always in his mind at the beginning of the gospel. It's not something that came later. He always had that in mind. See, I'm, see I missed that. I thought the church was just sort of a community of people that sort of found each other. They floated together. But what he said was, that was his end game all the time. Think of it as a movie. When you see a movie, it starts out with tension, tells the whole story, gets to the end, and there's a, there's a little resolution. But a good ending points forward, doesn't it? So you can't think, it's, it doesn't just leave you hanging. It's not like the born identity at the end where you say, well, he's, yeah, he's still sort of confused and the government still wants him dead. He still don't know his name. The end. You're like, is there a sequel? Well, it turns out there's four of them or three of them or something else. It's more like, it's more like C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, when you get to the end of the line, which in the wardrobe, it says that the children are thinking amongst themselves, how are we going to explain to the professor how some of the garments in his wardrobe are gone? So they sit down and have a conversation with the professor only to find out that the professor knows all about this. It's like he seems to know that the back of his cabinet goes into Narnia and the professor starts to explain that they will, in fact, go back to Narnia, but not necessarily through the cabinet. And the way that Lewis ends that story, he said, so this really is the end of the adventure of the professor's wardrobe, but it's the beginning of the adventures of Narnia. You see what he's done? He sort of resolves the tension, comes full circle. He feels, we all feel happy. We're, we're in a good place. But then he also points toward the future and lets you know that maybe that's what I mean. The end of this thing was in his mind when he started writing the story. So all he did was just tell the story. But when he got to the end, it wasn't really the end at all because it was pointing toward the future. So when I started reading Luke 24, finished the gospel this uh, week, of course it's taken a while, um, I remembered Luke chapter 1 and 2, the birth of Jesus. Now, that story is very familiar to you, but if you put those two stories side by side, the birth of Jesus in Luke 1 and 2 and the end of the resurrection in Luke 24, you start to see some pretty close parallels. 
In both places, we're in Jerusalem. Why that's odd is because there's really, in the middle of the book, there's hardly any reference to Jerusalem at all. But at the beginning there is, and at the end there is. It's like they've ended where they started. In both places, people are filled with fear, joy, and amazement. And I mean, you remember when the angels were singing in the sky, you know, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And what it said was that the shepherds were filled with joy and amazement and fear. So there's this kind of weird mix. And in Luke 24, the same thing's happening. They've just heard about the resurrection and their part full of joy and part amazed, but they're also afraid. What if, what if he shows up? And it seems like in Luke 1 and 2, when the story begins... The Holy Spirit is overactive. He's the one that conceives the child. He's the one that tells Simeon to go into the temple. And when you get to the end of the story, the Holy Spirit is overactive because Jesus says, now y'all are to stay here until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when the Holy Spirit settles on you, then you will be my witnesses. It seems like in the beginning of Luke's story, God is starting to conceive of something. He has a message and he needs a host. So he goes to Mary, teenage girl, basically says, will you serve as host? I got to get this message into the world. She does and what is conceived is the incarnation. The incarnation is not just a baby. The incarnation is the divinity, the deity of God and humanity wed together. This is not just a story. This ain't Hallmark. This is a mystery in which what is invisible and what is visible is united. What is immortal and what is mortal is joined. God in flesh, humanity, wed together. It's a marvel. So you can't understand really the gospel. You can't understand the gospel until you understand it needs an incarnation. The message of Jesus is the person of Jesus. Somebody nod. That's, a, that's, a, that's right. Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Not anyway. <laughs> Ten years from now, it'll dawn on you and you'll go, wow, that's why I should have nodded. Nod. <laughs> but when you get to the end of the gospel, the same thing is happening. It's like God has a message and he needs a host. And so in Luke chapter 24... 45, 46, and 47, here's the message. He opens our minds to the scriptures. He reminds them that everything that has happened was predicted. He says, this is the message. The repentance and the forgiveness of sin shall be preached in my name to all the nations of the earth. Now he's looking for a host. He says to a community of disciples... You are my witnesses. You see what he's doing? He's not just saying you should go talk about this. He's saying the message needs 
a host. If you have a message and you do not have a body of people, you only have an idea. But when you can take that message and you can embed it inside of the people so that the people are as essential as the message, then you have the gospel. The gospel without the community is only an idea. You might as well have God send an email. But when he actually shows up in the flesh, he communicates somehow that the embodiment of this message is an essential part of saving the world. And at the end of Luke's gospel, the beginning is there. When he gives that message to a community of believers and says, you will be a spirit-filled community and you will embody that message. He seems to communicate, you can't have a gospel without a community of believers. Essential part of that. Now why this is important is because if you look back, we tend to have a high view of one and a low view of the other. So when I grew up, we had a high view of the gospel. We were all about preaching and proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. But the purpose of the church was sort of a platform for talented people to get up and say deep things or sing cool songs. It was a series of classes where people could come as if it were Home Depot and work on their spiritual lives and sort of use this program, <laughs> program. But there was nothing mystical or magical about the body itself. We did not belong to each other. We each belonged individually to God. But if I'm understanding Luke 24 right, he's saying God is up to something at the end of this gospel. And what he's up to is putting a spirit-filled community of believers with a powerful message in the world and turning them loose. And all of a sudden, the end is the beginning. It's where you start from. It's how things get changed. What a powerful message that is. Sometimes if you uh, have time to think about it, think about that the church that you've attended to your entire life, the one you grew up in, you were baptized, you did all of these sacraments. You may not have known it and you may not know it now, but God is doing something magical, really mystical in the arms of the church. It's a mighty force in the world. Then there's our church. <laughs> this baby's 122 years old. You didn't know that, did you? That's older than some of you. We started in 1895. Now, you understand, there is the church. And the mission of the church 
It's to proclaim and embody the life of Jesus Christ. See, we don't even know how to do it until we're with people who show us with their lives. That's the the church. But then within that mission, every local church has to find its own. So this is how we found ours. 1890, this is not the original pastor. I just want to point out a couple things. First, that the early pastors wore jeans. That's nice. I still don't have the nerve to wear jeans on the platform. I know some of you wished I would. You ain't seen me in jeans. My daughter says, Daddy pants. What on earth is that? Uh, This is one of the earlier pastors, and as far as I know, this is how he made his calls. That's amazing. I wonder if he had Bluetooth in that baby, man. Sound system, big woofer in the back, couple of furry dice hanging from the front, curb feelers out the side. Maybe not. Uh, If you think about it, 1895, uh, that was one year before Henry Ford even built his first automobile. It's 13 years before the Model T came off the line. It was eight years before the first World Series. That's old. Eight years before the Wright brothers, not blubbers, (laughs) flew away from Kitty Hawk. Ten years before Einstein wrote his theory of relativity, this puppy is old. That's what I'm saying. We uh, started on the corner over here with a, uh, a tent. Somebody preached a revival meeting and a whole bunch of people got saved and they had nowhere to put them. So they didn't have any place to disciple them. So what they decided was we ought to throw together a church to disciple the people that just got saved. Note to self, a hundred years ago, evangelism preceded church planning. That was a consistent pattern all the way through the second awakening. Tons of people got saved, didn't know what to do with them. Then you planted a church. But in the last 40 or 50 years, we've sort of flipped it and said, if you want to get people saved, you got to plant a church. Man, back then they were already saved. You just don't know what to do with them. So they started throwing churches together, and that's how this one started. They decided to meet in some building we still can't identify. And then in 1896, they pulled their money together and they built this. I think it was about 750 bucks. And heaven churches changed only slightly. I mean, I don't just mean size. I mean, I looked at this and thought, where was the atrium? I mean, where's the foyer? The foyer's the front yard. This church was over on Boot Street. It's still standing right over here. I went over there about two years ago, knocked on the door. The pastor comes out. It's a non-denomination. And now he comes out and says, what do you want? (laughs) Welcome to you too. And he said, "Uh, do you need something? I said, well, actually, I'm from a local church. I just kind of like to look at you. And he he brought me in the sanctuary, and he showed me, like, the hole in the ceiling where the old stovepipe went through, because that's how they heated it. They threw wood on the fire in the middle of the service. The women were mad. I've heard stories of this, because their clothes kept touching the the stove, and they burned their clothes. And and I think it was like 1913 or so, they had a big argument in the church. I was so relieved. I thought, gosh, they were fighting back then. Yes. I thought, man, I must be a horrible leader when there's conflict. Well, I probably am, but we've had lots of bad leaders then. (laughs) 
They were arguing over what they should do with the lighting. They had those gas stoves and there was this move to get modern and contemporary, read secular, by uh, having lights installed. And they eventually decided to go cutting edge and use lights. 1917, we could afford our first pastor, had our first person, paid him $16 a week. The custodian made $1 a week. Nobody else got paid. That was full time, by the way, for the pastor. Finally, uh, we outgrew this, this little church, which they called a soul-saving station. That's a great name. They said, you guys go through pastors like socks, but, and it's true, I think we had 26 pastors in 65 years. But you guys reached the lost like nobody's business. They were streaming into this church and we outgrew it. 1920, there was a group of people decided to found a university just to the south. You might have heard of this. This is the unique thing about this. College Church was here 25 years before um, we were a college church. We were South Marion Wesleyan Methodist Church for 25 or more years. And then because we didn't have any space, they let us use the top floor of the administration building over there. And it was a really nice place to meet from the stories that I've heard, but funerals, they said, were bare. You had to haul that casket down three flights of stairs. So, man, oh man. I mean, if you were going to die, lose weight first, right? They're going to put you through a window. Well, that lasted for 18 years, and we outgrew that little facility over there. Again, more people were beginning to be safe. But that was a significant shift in our church, if you pay attention to this, location, location, location. What started out in a tent meeting on the corner of 38th and Washington moved geographically in the direction of South Marion. It was the South Marion Wesleyan Methodist Church. It was not until we moved over to the campus in order to meet there that the name changed to College Church. Why this is significant to me is because our mission is so complex. Every time we look at our mission, I'm just like, I'm confused, and I'm supposed to be the leader. And if you look at our history, the reason we're confused is because we've had seasons in our life that most churches don't have. There was a geographical move from an entity on the corner that existed primarily to serve its own people to one that existed in South Marion with an emphasis on reaching the lost to one that then sat inside of a university and then served the greater church. Those are significant moves geographically that most churches don't have to make. So if you're feeling schizophrenic, that's why. Well, you, I mean, you might be sick too, but that could be why. So we moved then to what became Macon, built that church. And from that church, we outgrew it pretty soon because, again, people from the university, people from, 
from the Wesleyan Church and then people from the community were starting to come together. And then we built this one here. This cross, by the way, is the one on the wall. We have several artifacts from our past. We have a, like a little um, chandelier from an old church out in the atrium, have stained glass that we've put up here. From the, we're trying to bring the past with us, you know. This, by the way, is the youth group. <laughs> What's happened to youth today? Why don't they wear neckties? <laughs> this church lasted, I don't know, 40 years or so, and I think the longest pastor stayed six years, and that only happened twice until Ken Hare came and stayed about 11 or 12 years. Um, but it started to grow, and people from the university, people from the community, people from the Wesleyan church, you know, I mean, the higher-ups, all started to pour into this church, and we outgrew it. And then we moved here, the church that you're in. So there's been a series of moves in this church um, from one place, one location to another. And, and uh, our identity has sort of morphed or changed in that. We're always trying to find ourselves in the greater church. I moved here in 2001. I was uh, up in North Michigan uh, in a deer lodge in 2003, holding a series of meetings, not in the lodge, in a church, but I was staying in the lodge. Everybody in North Michigan has a deer rack in a car in the yard with parts missing. And, and so, but it was a great series of meetings. One afternoon, I had a board meeting back here in this old church and I couldn't attend it. And I was trying to put the pieces together in my head and, and, and I started to figure, I remember it well, it was October 14, 2003, a night that shall live in infamy. It's the night Steve Bartman touched the foul ball. I was watching the game in my room while I was talking to the board. You can do two things at once, right? There's important and kind of important. There's a ball game and then there's a board meeting. And I remember uh, in absence trying to describe to the board what I was seeing in college church. And they said to me on this conference phone call, they said, have you figured it out yet? No, I'm still schizophrenic, still taking medicine. I said, um, the best as I can tell, our church is devoted to three entities, not one. Would somebody go up and draw a triangle? So somebody, I guess, I hope, drew a triangle on the whiteboard. And I said, this is kind of what I'm seeing. On the base of that triangle, we are devoted to taking care of our own people. God is making disciples in our own congregation. And our first call of duty right now is to make sure that we make the best disciples we can. We have to make more and better disciples. On the other side of the triangles, I said, on another one, is that I've never been in a church where God has embedded more of our people in significant places in the community as in this church. I mean, my goodness, we could have a township meeting on any given <laughs> Some of you do. <laughs> you know, leaders in the community say, that's all right, I'll just wait till I see him in church. 
and, and, and they, they conduct business here and they have conversations in the bathroom and all sorts of weird places because it's that kind of a church. We don't have to place people in the Marian community. They're already there and they've been there a long time. We just have to release them and empower them and support them and they can do some serious work in our community. I said that seems rare to me. And then the third part of our church has always been that we are embedded inside of the larger church. I remember the night they voted on me of whether I should come to be a pastor or not. As soon as the vote was over, I went outside, got in my car, was driving across town, called my dad on the cell phone in Florida and said, I thought you'd like to know the score. He said, don't bother. I heard the vote was and he gave me the vote. In Florida? I said, did somebody call? He said, the person who called me wasn't even in the room. What? He said, you have a long tail up there. Don't screw up. (laughs) So I laid this out, and all of a sudden there was dead silence. Nobody on the board says anything. So I'm thinking, oh, man, I just got fired. And all of a sudden, I was thinking, wait, maybe they're watching Steve Bartman, too, and they can't, they can't figure out why he touched the foul ball. The Cubs are out of the series. I bet they're mad. It was dead silence. And all of a sudden, Paul Meeks, this old guy on the board, he just goes, Steve, you might be wondering why there's real silence in the room right now. I said, I was sort of thinking about it. My wife is packing. They said, we're all thinking and we're not sure what to make of this. Might be onto something, maybe not. And then all of a sudden in the dead silence, Paul just starts going. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. And I went, oh, 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 that was the most beautiful sound I have ever heard in my life. For the next hour, the board bantered back and forth on the ideas, fixing things, tweaking things, adding things. And by the end of it, we walked away with the conviction that, in fact, our history was our mission. God has called us to make more and better disciples, but he has also called us to do the same thing to the community. Not until I moved here did I see the impact that a local church can have on the community. Up to that point, I always thought evangelism was something individuals did with other individuals to lead them to Jesus. But when I got in college church, I started to see that a church could serve as a collective witness and they could actually transform structures and traditions and systems within an entire community. That was a bold new idea. And then we began to think about what God might do in our church for the larger church. Not until I moved to college church did I see the individual church is to the body of Christ what an individual is to the local church. Stay in your lane. Be who you are. Develop it to the best of your ability. Then come to the table of other individuals or other churches and live boldly what Jesus has called you to do. You don't have to be everything. You have to be part of everything.
That was a significant change in my understanding. Now, if you're still following, would you write down four or five words? This then is how our church is beginning to express its mission within the greater church. One of those words is belonging. One of those words is including. One of those words is discovering. One of those words is resourcing. And another one of those words is transforming. Let me start at the very beginning. One of the things that we're committed to in our church, and you can be part of this, is creating a strong sense of belonging. Now listen closely, especially if you're in college. Because if you're in college, you tend to see sometimes the local church service, like this service right here, as a fourth chapel. And so you sort of come for the value and then leave or detach without actually belonging. So one of the things you can do, especially if you come to the university, you just saw this group of people. A lot of these people are involved in the ministries. They're participating. They're not just attending services. And so when they go, they're actually taking... I got an email this week from someone who is leaving and going overseas and said, I'll be streaming every week from Turkey She's been summoned to go there and serve there. We get this all the time of people that used to serve in our church, and then on graduation, they go somewhere else. So if you're in that area, belong, belong. One of those ways is to participate in one of the ministries or simply join the church. Join the church. We've taken in, oh, man, I don't know how many members in the last year, 40, 50, I guess, and I'm always asking, how many are under 35? Because I want to make sure we have a stream of younger people, and if you're my age, anything under 35 is like youth, uh, coming into the life of our church. Let me add that word, including. That's the other one. We're too white. And we're too American. So eight or nine years ago, I was here we did not have a single individual in this church that I can remember that wasn't white, mostly middle class, mostly higher educated, mostly happily married with 2.2 kids. But what's changed or is changing is the number of people God is bringing to our from outside of that narrow bandwidth. And that's a good thing. And here's why. It's not because we're politically correct. I could give a rip about political correctness. I try to think, people, we can't be who Jesus is until we are all of him. And he has taken part of himself and embedded it in different ethnicities. It's a theological reason. It's not a marketing reason. It's not a political reason. It's a deep-seated belief that in the Trinity there is tension, but there is strength. In opposites, there is beauty. And so what we are trying to be, and right now we're between 3 and 4%, I think, in all three of our services combined, what we're trying to be is more together what the triune God was alone. I'll get off my soapbox.
Almost. I have one more thing to say about that in the words of Forrest Gump. It's more than ethnicities. There's an external ethnicity, or there's an external diversity, and there's an internal diversity. And if the people that are coming to our church are of different ethnicities, but they are all middle class, highly educated, happily married, then what we have is an external diversity. We do not have an internal diversity until people from different socioeconomic systems, different values, and different experiences can sit at the same table and decide the future of this church. That's all I got to say about that. All right, I'll say it. That's good preaching, Steve. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Discovery. When we talk about discovering in our church, we talk about going into the community and listening to the community. And here's why. Because it always occurs to me that every church is trying to reach its city without ever talking to the city. Like we know. So over the years, we've tried to develop sustained conversations with leaders in our community. We're doing it still. We've had mayors, police chiefs, fire chiefs, council members, superintendents, leaders in the community inside the building multiple times talking to leaders or in their office multiple times talking to leaders from our church about how we can touch the community where the community believes it needs touching, not just what we think. This year, we're actually re-upping our investment at Francis Slocum. It's a school just about a mile and a half from us. Out of the ministries in Francis Slocum so far, we know over seven or eight years, more than 20 children have come to Jesus Christ in a confession of faith. We're inside of even more homes than that. We're not just in cafeterias. Well, we're there too. We're in living rooms with families working on social family issues that for some have nothing to do with the gospel, but they reflect the power of the gospel as our mentors go into those living rooms. So one of the ways that you can lean in, of course, is to say, I'm going to be one of those mentors. And if you don't, if that's too much of a commitment, then you can lean in and say, I want to be something of an encourager, prayer partner, supporter for people that are inside of Slocum School so we can help there. See is still busier than all get out in the community. Still active in the VIP, it's a strip club, maybe a couple blocks off the bypass. If you don't know where it's at, you shouldn't. <laughs> These are um, women that are largely dancing, not because they want to, but because they feel they have to. For some of them, this is a promotion. Those are their words, not mine. At least I don't have to sleep with them. So when you get into ministries like that, these are high-intensity, high-maintenance ministries. We can't throw 20 people in there, and you can't just go if you want. You, you really need to go through SIA and through the outreach in order to plug into a ministry like that. But if you'll do that, they may be able to use you there if you're female. If you're a guy, just pray. Then there's resourcing. 
One of the things God has done with our church is given us a broader and broader and broader platform in the greater church. This year we're talking about extending uh, or becoming more aggressive in our attempt to help ministers that have had a, let's just say a bad time. You know, it occurred to me some time ago that oddly enough, we have not sought all, any of these things out. In the last eight or nine years, there's been a steady stream of pastors that come into our church and we don't even know they're here until they've been here a couple months. And then we hear their stories. And what we hear are stories of an affair, stories of bankruptcy. We hear stories of just burnout where guys, women are saying, I am tired and done with the local church. And so they just leave the ministry and they come into our church because it's large and they slip in the back and they never, they never identify themselves until they've been here a couple months. And then lo and behold, you start to hear the stories. And you guys, I think every single time, every single time, I can't think of one. I could give you names right now, but I won't. They end up going back into ministry. We don't send them back. We don't tell them to go. We don't say, now that we know, let's pray over you. We don't do any of those things. What happens is they come here, they get healed, they find what the body is capable of, and then they all of a sudden go back. I talked to one Easter Sunday right here in the middle aisle while we were singing the first song. He stood up, introduced himself six, eight months ago out there. Been coming almost three or four months. He finally introduced himself after being calling this time. And he said, as long as we're here, I said, as long as you're here, he said, something's happening. I don't know what it is. He stood right there last week while the first song was being played, and he said, Steve, I thought you should be the first to know. A friend of mine is going to start a church in Williamsport, and we're going back with him, back into the ministry. I said, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. That is the coolest thing ever. Because there are tons of people that go out and they get burned out. But they're not done yet. They just had a bad experience. So this year we're talking about strengthening that ministry that reaches out to pastors that are struggling so we can do it here and do it in other places as well. Finally, I gave you the word transforming. The heart and soul of our church is that God can make a person just like Jesus Christ. Let me cut to the chase. We think that God can give you a humanity that is as holy as the humanity of Jesus Christ. We mean that. We mean God can transform every fiber of your being like he turns water into wine. He changes the nature of a thing, not just the appearance. It isn't just your behaviorisms or your actions that he changes. He changes your desires, your tastes, your preferences. All of those things are changed. Maybe not in an instant, but they can be radically changed by the power of God. So anytime that you come to a service like this and you lean in and you absorb those words, whenever you attend a small group, 20, 30 of those, or you stay or you come early and go to a Sunday school class and participate in that. Whenever you have a friend and you begin to disciple that friend, then you're not just attending a church that disciples, you're actually making disciples yourself. And that's what disciples do. You can lean in by doing these things. Boy, I encourage you, however old you are, however long you've been here, find someone in your life and start pouring into them the gospel that someone has poured into you. And you'll be part of the discipleship movement, the transforming ministry of our church.